yesterday about the uncertainty of our economy. Please provide for those who are unemployed or underemployed. Lord, we particularly lift up those who may be affected by the Morgan Keegan sale. And Lord, we pray for the welfare and prosperity of our community. Lord, we know your word is active, sharp, and penetrating. Open our minds and hearts to it. Make it come alive in us. Make us men who are not just hearers, but are doers of your word. Transform us, Lord. We're weary of living lives which too often bow to counterfeit gods. Lord, we've experienced it. That is <coughs> exhausting. It's not what we're made for, Lord. Forgive us for that. But through your grace, make us free men who can live new lives filled with faith, obedience, hope, love, and compassion. And we pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen. Greet your neighbor. Thank you, sir. Good morning, gentlemen. Great to see you. Uh, appreciate Price's prayer for those of you with Morgan Keegan and those of you depending upon Morgan Keegan. We're eager to see what's going to happen there. Things happen. Things change. We always need to be ready for that. Uh, for those of you who are LSU fans, I want to express my deepest condolences and sympathy. My, my uh, daughter uh, serves a church uh, in uh, Baton Rouge, Louisiana. And she told me that on Sunday, all of the liturgists wore purple and gold. I understand they're wearing black this Sunday. Okay. Guys, uh, please take your Bibles and turn to Acts chapter 12. <clears throat> and uh, having seen the life and ministry of Peter and how he was confronted with the international nature of the gospel, that it goes not only to Jew but to Gentile. And Peter had his own racism dealt with decisively in chapters 10 and 11. And then we come to 12 and we see how uh, the same principle is being applied in Antioch, uh, the third largest city in the Roman Empire, which was very metropolitan, very cosmopolitan. Uh, and we see how the gospel took root there and some Gentiles began to hear the gospel there, thanks to the Cyprians and those from Cyrene, and they began to believe. And the Jerusalem church sent Barnabas there to check this thing out. Barnabas was a good man. We saw how rare that is. We tend to think that great is rarer and more precious than good. It's actually just the opposite. Great is far more common than good. And Barnabas was a good man. He went to check it out. We saw the kinds of things that he did, which are the kinds of things we need to do 
uh, in our uh, cosmopolitan area where we have different ethnic groups and different backgrounds and people of different uh, uh, neighborhoods seeking to live together in community, all of whom need to hear the gospel and to be grafted into the family of God together with ourselves. Then we come to chapter 12, and before we, we pick up the story of Paul in chapter 13, where he and Barnabas are launched into their first missionary journey from Antioch, which becomes the staging ground for the international uh, mission of the church. We're going to go back to Peter uh, for a moment. Go back to Jerusalem for a moment. And we're going to see here a very, very important episode in the history of the church. And it has to do with, with martyrdom. It has to do with those who are sharing their faith, actually losing their lives over it, or in Peter's case, actually escaping again. And we're going to see why one happens to one and one, and one happens to the other. But, bef- but before we launch into the text, I'd like for us to think about just what's going on in our world today. Uh, there are, we are told by uh, organizations like uh, Open Doors, which uh, puts out the world watch on world persecution, that over half the countries in the world, there, I think there are 196 of us, but over half of them actually persecute believers. That's, that's an enormous percentage. And then uh, of those half, 50 of them are uh, especially uh, naughty. We probably have 100 million people uh, who are being persecuted right now, 100 million brothers and sisters who are being actively persecuted in various countries around the world. It's an enormous problem. And because we live here in a rather protected state, uh, we can often forget the danger that our brothers and sisters are in. I remember uh, reading an article, an editorial some years ago uh, by uh, A.W. Rosenthal, who's a, a Jewish commentator, and I don't know what, what type, of, uh, what group of Judaism he belongs to or how active he is. But Rosenthal made this comment. I remember it was about probably 10 years ago. It was in the New York Times. He asked the question. He said, he said, I am a Jewish person. He said, I'm aware of Christians who are being slaughtered. And he listed about 10 countries where this is going on, and we're hardly hearing anything in the press about it. And, of course, our Jewish friends are very sensitive to these things, aren't they? Because they're victims of the Holocaust recently in the you know, 20, 20th century. So this is really present on their minds. And Rosenthal was saying, look, I'm, I'm aware of these kinds of things. I'm very sensitive to them, and I see it going on against a particular religious group in the world. And it's, he says it's millions of people. It far exceeds anything in the Holocaust in Germany. And he asked this question. He said, why is somebody not saying anything? Why is there not a, a worldwide uprising against such tyranny? And uh, he, he was uh, just scandalized by the, the, the whole thing. Well, of course, uh, part of the answer is that folks uh, who are brothers and sisters in Jesus like ourselves and who live in, in comfort and relative luxury, uh, we're, we're kind of asleep on this. And we probably don't advocate in the way that we should. And I know that we don't pray the way that we should. We should be actively engaged in prayer and in advocacy for our brothers and sisters around the world. But there's another deeper reason that if I had an opportunity to talk to Mr. Rosenthal, I would explain it to him that there's a theology of martyrdom that is endemic to the Christian faith. 
and that it is actually part of our lifestyle. And I want you to see this in chapter 12. And we're going to find out why it is that this kind of martyrdom happens to people like you and me. Let's take a look at Acts chapter 12 and see if we can pull out the answers to these kinds of questions from this chapter. <clears throat> now about that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belonged to the church. He killed James, the brother of John, with the sword. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he proceeded to arrest Peter also. This was during the days of unleavened bread, and when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him over to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out to the people. So Peter was kept in prison, but earnest prayer for him was made to God by the church. Now, when Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers, bound with two chains and sentries before the door were guarding the prison. And behold, the angel of the Lord stood next to him, and a light shone in the cell. He struck Peter on the side and woke him, saying, Get up quickly. And the chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Dress yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so. And he said to him, Wrap your cloak around you and follow me. And he went out and followed him. He did not know what was being done by the angel was real, but thought he was seeing a vision. When they had passed the first and the second guard, they came to the iron gate leading into the city. It opened for them of its own accord, and they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel left him. When Peter came to himself, he said, Now I am sure that the Lord has sent his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all that the Jewish people were expecting. When he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, whose other name was Mark, where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gateway, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. Recognizing Peter's voice, in her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and reported that Peter was standing at the gate. They said to her, you're out of your mind. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, it is his angel. But Peter continued knocking. And when they opened, they saw him and were amazed. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had brought him out of the prison. And he said, tell these things to James and to the brothers. Then he departed and went to another place. Now when day came, there was no little disturbance among the soldiers over what had become of Peter and after Herod searched for him and did not find him, he examined the sentries and ordered that they should be put to death. Then he went down from Judea to Caesarea and spent time there. Now Herod was angry with the people of Tyre and Sidon, and they came to him with one accord. And having persuaded Blastus, the king's chamberlain, they asked for peace because their country depended on the king's country for food. On an appointed day, Herod put on his royal robes took his seat upon the throne and delivered an oration to them. And the people were shouting, The voice of a God and not of a man. Immediately an angel of the Lord struck him down because he did not give God the glory. And he was eaten by worms and breathed his last. But the word of God increased and multiplied. Amen. Well, we got 
Swords and worms and prisons. It's perfect for boys and men. Perfect text for men. Everything's there that you'd ever want in a Hollywood movie. Guys, it's interesting, isn't it, that what we hear about most of all are the deliverances of Paul from the hands of uh, Herod Agrippa II. We hear about Peter's deliverances from the Sanhedrin and here a long chapter on his deliverance from prison. And all you get about James is one half of one verse. James was killed. And everybody talks about Peter and everybody talks about Paul. And, of course, they were ultimately martyred too, weren't they? But very few people talk about James. This is James, the brother of John, the sons of Zebedee, the sons of thunder, the, the followers of Jesus, you remember, who were called from the Sea of Galilee, a fisherman. And here we're told of his own martyrdom. In Stephen's case, we have a longer story about his martyrdom, but here a half a verse. And in most people, in, in the case of most people who've been martyred, there's no verse at all. And so it's easily forgotten. But I'd like for us to look at this text basically under the theme of that martyrdom and see if we can understand its meaning because, brothers, it means something to us today. It should dramatically change the way we go about living for Jesus today if we can understand this text and this martyrdom. Well, first of all, in verse 1, we see clearly that we shall face violent opposition to the gospel. About that time, Herod the king laid violent hands on some who belong to the church. When Paul was talking uh, to Timothy in 2 Timothy, his last letter, a letter he wrote when he knew he was facing his own martyrdom, he said to Timothy in chapter 3, verse 12, everyone who seeks to live, live a godly life will be persecuted. Let me say that again. Everyone who seeks to live a godly life will be persecuted. Now, if you say that you're a Christian or you go to church, but you don't seek a godly life, then you can avoid persecution. And the big problem with those of us who claim to be Christians, where we struggle often in our Christian lives, is our coping mechanisms to try to avoid persecution and avoid difficulty, whether it's on the playground at school or at Morgan Keegan. We're constantly seeking to minimize persecution. Who wouldn't? Who likes pain? I don't like pain. Jesus didn't like it either. And of course, in both Paul and Jesus' case, you don't find them foolishly asking for persecution, but you find them boldly facing persecution. And you don't find them compromising their beliefs or their duties to avoid persecution. But we should know from the very beginning that we will face violent opposition to the gospel sometimes from violent people like uh, Herod Agrippa I, who happened to be the grandson of Herod the Great. So he had a lineage, as you, as you would know, from the Herods of great violence. He was also a nephew of Herod Antipas, who was the Herod who interviewed Jesus uh, at Pilate's request. So there are all kinds of Herods. This is Herod Agrippa I, and he was as violent as any of them. You also find, why don't you turn with me in your Bibles to, to Matthew chapter 5, and let's look for a moment at the very opening portion of the Sermon on the Mount. And this would be on page 1828. In the Sermon on the Mount, and especially under the Beatitudes, do you remember the last Beatitude? Let's look at it for just a moment. Jesus says, Blessed are the poor in spirit, blessed are those who mourn, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. 
Blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness. Blessed are the merciful, the pure in heart. Blessed are the peacemakers. Then look at this last one, verse 10. Blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. Not just persecuted, but persecuted for righteousness' sake. For theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Blessed are you when others revile you and persecute you and utter all kinds of evil against you falsely, look at this, on my account. So there's no blessing that just goes with being abused. People are abused all the time. You've been abused. You've been abused sometimes because you deserved it, <laughs> got yourself in trouble. Uh, the, the beatitude does not apply to those times that you picked a fight and then you got, got whooped, you know, and got abused. Uh, you are blessed in that. But when you took the place of Jesus Christ and you stood where he wanted you to stand and you were representing him and you were seeking do what, to do what was right because you wanted to honor him, it was for the sake of righteousness, then you are blessed Rejoice, says Jesus, and be glad, verse 12, for your reward is great in heaven, for so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. You can't imagine the reward that you receive for the smallest little persecution that you've already forgotten. And so what we see is that violence will come to anyone who seeks to live a godly life anywhere in the world. You say, well, couldn't I get cloistered in a monastery and avoid some of this? No, there's some who have tried that, and it doesn't work. You know why? The monastery is full of sinners. And some of the worst persecution you can get is within the church. When people who are claiming to be Christians tell you that you're an evangelistic nutcase because you want to share the gospel with somebody else, and they want you to conform to their dead formalism so that they don't feel guilty for being uh, unenthusiastic followers of Jesus themselves. Some of the worst persecution has been by the nominal church. It's unavoidable. And the most difficult times for you and for me is when we take a stand for Jesus Christ with our closest brothers who are lagging. Paul had to do that as we'll see. And anyone who's sought to live a godly life has eventually experienced that even within the church. There's persecution everywhere for anyone who would live a godly life. That's clear in the scriptures. Turn with me to 1 Peter because, and this would be page 24, 2410. 1 Peter uh, is, of course, written by Peter. And Peter himself ended up facing persecutions, as you know, even in this chapter. And uh, he writes a lot about it. And if you look, for example, in chapter 1, before we get, even get out of the first chapter, he's talking about afflictions. And he says, um, verse 5, who by God's power are being guarded through faith for a salvation ready to be revealed in the last time. Verse 6, in this you rejoice and now for a little while, if necessary, you have been grieved by various trials. So he talks about trials there. And if you turn to chapter 3, uh, if you uh, would look in verse uh, 13, he says, Now, who is there to harm you if you are zealous for what is good? But even if you should suffer for righteousness' sake, you will be blessed. Have no fear of them, nor be troubled. 
But in your hearts, honor Christ the Lord as holy, always being prepared to make a defense to anyone who asks you for a reason for the hope that is in you. Yet do it with gentleness and respect so we don't stand up to our persecutors with harshness, shrill tones, self-righteous condemnations. No, with gentleness and respect. Turn to chapter 4 in 1 Peter, verses 12 through 19. He says, Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery trial when it comes upon you to test you as though something strange were happening to you. In other words, you've been taught, you know that persecution comes to anyone who seeks to live a godly life. Don't act like you're surprised. But rejoice, here's the word again, insofar as you share Christ's sufferings, that you may also rejoice and be glad when His glory is revealed. So rejoice now so that you'll rejoice then. Rejoice now that you're being considered worthy to identify with Jesus Christ and His sufferings so that you'll rejoice then when He comes back in all of His glory to reward His people. If you are, he says in verse 14, if you are insulted for the name of Christ, you are blessed because the Spirit of glory and of God rests upon you. Look at those enormous promises that are attached to this. But then look at verse 15. But let none of you suffer as a murderer or a thief or an evildoer, or a meddler. Yet if anyone suffers as a Christian, let him not be ashamed, but let him glorify God in that name. And so on. So you see that he's saying, don't, don't let yourself be persecuted because you got in trouble with the law. Now let yourselves be persecuted because you got yourself in trouble with Jesus and you got yourself in trouble with violent hands. Okay, so we see that we shall face this of one form or another, and we, even though we live in a protected environment uh, from physical danger for our faith, we are not in a protected environment for other kinds of danger to your reputation, to your social connections, to your prestige, even to your income. Now, secondly, when you look at verse 2 uh, uh, regarding James, we learn this. Some disciples will face martyrdom for their faith. Some disciples will face martyrdom for their faith. Now, Jesus actually predicted this in Mark chapter 10, verses 38 and 39, when John uh, and James' mother said, Can my boys sit at your right and left hand when you take over the kingdom? <laughs> and Jesus said, You know, uh, it's not for me to give those to them, but they will drink the same baptism I'm drinking. He was saying they will face the same suffering that he faces. So Jesus predicted that. It wasn't what their mother had in mind, but it's what happened to James. Now, <clears throat> I'd like for us to see that uh, although this, this martyrdom seems so outrageous to us and so out of character for the Christian church, uh, turn with me to Romans 8. I want you to see an important verse here. This would be on page 2172. And, um, <clears throat> you know, in the, uh, in the Episcopal uh, Book of Common Prayer, and actually in the, uh, many, most of you would not use this, but the Presbyterian Book of Common Worship, in the funeral liturgy, uh, Romans 8 is often used, and if you've been to funerals, you've often heard it, but there's a, there's, a, there's a verse that's not in the liturgy. Let me read to you how the Book of Common Prayer and the Presbyterian Book of Common Worship uh, read Romans 8. Uh, it goes on to say, who sh this would be verse 35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? 
Shall tribulation or distress or persecution or famine or nakedness or danger or sword? No, in all these things we are more than conquerors through Him who loved us. For I am sure that neither death nor life, nor angels nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height nor depth, nor anything else in all creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. A wonderful series of verses, but did you notice I skipped one? I skipped it because the Book of Common Prayer skips it. Here, here's the verse. For as it is written, for your sake we are being killed all the day long. We are regarded as sheep to be slaughtered. Not what you'd consider a really great funeral text, eh? <laughs> so, for the funeral liturgy, airbrush it right out of there. And to give us the rest. And that's, you know, it's legitimate to skip around, read various verses. I'm not uh, blaming the Presbyterians or the Episcopalians on this. But, but because of that, we often don't think about that verse. Now, gentlemen, I want to suggest to you that that verse is crucial to Paul's entire argument here. What we normally think of is that, you know, death can't harm me. I'm more than a conqueror, it says here in the text, because neither life nor death nor angels nor demons nor principalities or powers anything in all creation will be able to separate me from the love of God that is in Christ Jesus our Lord. And so I just go right through death. Now, that is part of the argument, but it's not the only argument. In fact, I might suggest it's not the main argument. The main argument is found in verse 36. Here's what Paul is saying. He's saying you would think that when you get slaughtered and when you get thrown into jail and when you get hung and when you get uh, electrocuted because you're a Christian, that God has separated himself from you, that somehow you're under his chastisement or that he's forgotten you or he doesn't love you anymore. Paul is saying just the opposite, gentlemen. When you get fried for your faith, let me remind you of something. That's why you're here. You're sheep to be fattened for the slaughter. Begin to get the picture? You know, if you have a little lamb and you want lamb chops, you feed them some stuff, and then you chop them up so you can have your lamb chops. The lamb is fattened so that you'll have a meal. Paul is saying, Brothers, I need to remind you of something. You are being fattened up to be slaughtered for a particular purpose. So don't think that because you get slaughtered or you get persecuted or you get violently dealt with that somehow something terrible spiritually has happened to you. You know what you're doing? You're fulfilling your purpose on the earth. So of course we're conquerors. We're fulfilling our purpose. This is why we're here. And Americans don't think this way. Our job is to avoid as much pain... <laughs> and to enjoy as much comfort as we possibly can. That's our job. And Christians ought to be able to demand that. We have just the opposite view of the apostolic view. Let me just remind us of something. If you take all 12 apostles and eliminate Judas and replace him with Matthias, that's 12, and then you get Paul later, that's 13. Okay, let's take the 13. What happened to those men? John died of old age in exile on the Isle of Patmos. We know that. Do you know what happened to the other 12? Every single one of them was slaughtered because of their faith. Every one of them. We don't have that in the Scriptures, but Christian tradition teaches us. I mean, Thomas goes off to India, and there's a church in India even to this day that is of the lineage of Thomas's evangelism there. What happened to Thomas? Well, we're told in tradition that he was stoned to death. What about Andrew? He went to the north country in Europe. And he was 
He was slain on a cross, a diagonal cross. That's the reason you get St. Andrew's cross. What about Peter? Well, tradition tells us he was crucified upside down. He said, I'm not worthy to be crucified right side up like my Savior crucified me upside down. What about the Apostle Paul? We have strong traditions that teach us that he was beheaded in Rome. What about Philip? Philip, we're told, he, his, he was crucified on a slender cross. And so the sign of Philip is a cross. It's a real slender one where he was nailed there to die. What about Bartholomew? He was flayed alive and then crucified. What about James? James right here was the... I mean, we can go on and on. Every single one of them. Now, that's the majority report from the church is that when you preach Jesus Christ and you represent Him and you minister in His name, you're going to get slaughtered. And the explanation is that's why you're here. We live in a little window of time and space where we're protected and therefore we've developed a very different view of the Christian life. Basically, our view is, you know, you become a Christian, you'll probably get promoted because you'll be an honest man. Everybody will know it. You're going to work harder. People will like you more. You'll have more friends. It'll actually be good for you to become a Christian. And that's the view that we've developed. And you find it on the TV airwaves all the time. We're preaching this. Come to Jesus and you can have this and Jesus too. The majority report around the world and through the ages is just the opposite. We need to remember that. As we take up our cross and follow him. Jesus said, no one can follow me unless he takes up his cross. He dies to himself. He denies himself and comes and follows me. That's the reason that this verse 2 is so important for us. You know, today we send out what we call short-term missionaries. Last year we had 137 adults that went all over the world, probably on about 12, 15 missions trips, and then a whole bunch of youth that go to Mexico and Africa and all over the world. And they go on what we call short-term trips. Usually that means one week, maybe two weeks. Short-term missions today can be anything up to two years. Well, let me tell you something about even 19th century North American missionaries. They were all short-termers. Not because they wanted to come back and finish their college education, but because they didn't survive. The average survival, length of survival of North American missionaries in the 19th century was two years. That was average. They all normally packed their belongings in their casket for convenience sake. And when they went to the field, they assumed that would be the last time they ever saw their parents or anybody back home, last time they'd set foot here. And they went off to share the gospel. That's the majority report. And that's what it means to be a Christian. Therefore, when we say things like, oh, I don't know if I want to evangelize so-and-so, you know, he probably won't have anything to do with me after that. Oh, I'm so sorry. Uh, you, you really shouldn't consider the Christian ministry if, you know, if, you're gonna, if somebody's going to get mad at you over it. I know a man who went back to his theology professor in seminary and said to him, after he'd been in ministry for a couple of years, he said, he said, Professor, I, I've been out there a couple of years. I can't do this anymore. I can't preach to people who hate me. And he said, well, you'll never preach. Of course, the gospel stirs up all kinds of things in people against you personally. Of course, this is what it's all about. Notice that some disciples will face martyrdom. That means death in this case for their faith. You see it with the Old Testament prophets, first of all, if you look at that bullet point underneath. And just look at Hebrews 11. You'll find that they were sawn in two. They were, they were beheaded. All kinds of things happened to the prophets. John the Baptist, what happened to him? Check out Matthew 14. He, too, was beheaded. Check out Stephen. 
the first martyr of the church, which we've already done in Acts chapter 6 and 7. And I've mentioned the apostles. And you see, for example, in John 21, that Peter's own martyrdom is predicted. And then Paul in 2 Timothy predicts his own martyrdom. So we know that upon the disciples' heart was a knowledge that they were moving toward death in this world as they took up the gospel ministry. Now, let's just pause for a minute and talk about Peter. Of course we fail. Of course we forget who we are and why we're here. Peter, who experienced this in Jerusalem and experienced being beaten by the Sanhedrin before and leaving the Sanhedrin and rejoicing that he was counted worthy to suffer for the name of Jesus, goes up to where Paul and Barnabas are and Peter sits with the Judaizers and not the Gentiles for for meal because he's afraid of offending the Judaizers. So even the apostle Peter, who showed courage in his career and eventually faces martyrdom, chickens out in any given moment. So do we. But does that mean then we just give up? No. We look back at the cross, look back at Christ, look back at our calling, and we start the morning again. We say, Lord, help me to live as a man who's already signed off today. Uh, There was a missionary who was going to uh, the South Pacific uh, to the islands there to preach the gospel to a group of cannibals. And the English admiral who was uh, leading the fleet before he dropped this missionary off, he said, Sir, don't you know these people eat people? You're going to die. And the missionary said to the admiral, Sir, I died before I came. There's, there's your answer. You die now, and therefore nothing can kill you. You've already died. And that's what Jesus was saying in his call to us. Then we have not only the, the apostles, but the leaders of the early church. You find in Revelation 20 that there is a whole group of martyrs, and the word martyr just means a witness. There are a whole group of witnesses under the altar of God waiting for the day of vindication for Christ to reveal his glory. And then, of course, many today. And the difficulty is that some will say, you know, should we waste these young lives, letting them go to the mission field and letting them go into dangerous urban areas in our country? You know, they could get shot down there. You know, they could have this happen to them and that happen to them. You know, bad things could happen to their children. Should we, should we really do this to our own children? Some of you are old enough to remember that when Jim Elliott and Nate Sane and some others went down to minister to the Aka Indians who were a lost tribal group in Ecuador. In 1956, uh, they landed their plane. They designed the plane so they could land on a short little beach by the river and start going over to minister to the Alcas. Before they ever got off that beach, they were slaughtered. And here were some young, bright, mid-20-year-old men all slaughtered by a group of savage Indians in Ecuador. And it was in the press, should the church really be sending their young people out to do such things, to get slaughtered like this? There was a real question about the Christian mission. And then you look at Jim Elliott's journals. Before he died, and he says, a man is no fool who gives what he cannot keep to gain what he cannot lose. Jim Elliott had already died. He'd already given it up for the Lord. He was ready to do that. And we ask ourselves sometimes, what's the purpose of this? Why would lives be wasted on the Christian mission with people who don't even care? People who want to oppose them, don't want them around. 
If you evangelize in Saudi Arabia today, you could be put to death. If you evangelize in Iran, or even if you don't evangelize, if you just have Christian credentials, you could be put in prison. Same thing could happen to you in Afghanistan. Three of the top persecuting countries in the world. Why would we send anybody to do that? Well, here's the reason. Because if you believe the gospel, if you believe in the worthiness of Jesus Christ, nothing less can possibly demonstrate how great he is. It all ultimately ends on him. How are you going to preach a gospel of eternal life about a Savior who is infinitely valuable and is not worthy of laying your life down joyfully when called for? It makes no sense. It denies if you're not willing to die for him. And if there is no death for him, it is a denial by the church that he is really as great as we say he is. If he is as great as we say he is, then every man's life is on the line. And we go into battle, marching us to war with Christ's cross before us. And it is a battle triumph of joy. That's what it is because of who he is. I remember uh, hearing uh, Dr. Joseph Zahn, that's T-S-O-N, a Romanian, who was a Christian pastor during the age of persecution under Ceausescu and those who preceded him. And Joseph Zahn, under that awful tyranny and persecution of the church, developed a theology of martyrdom. And here's what Joseph Zahn said, among many other things about martyrdom, and he's written on it. He says, you know, Actually, there are two crosses. He says that there's the cross of Christ and there's the cross of the believer. Because we take up our cross. And he said, that's the cross of martyrdom. And you must have both of them, the cross for you and the cross in you. And Joseph Zahn was bold enough to say, he says, we are not going to reach the world until there's a cross in the church. And the reason we're not reaching the world is there's no cross in the church. Uh, Dan Burns and I were talking just recently about Muslim evangelism. And Dan, who's our new world missions director here, has a real heart for the Muslim world. One reason is, of course, he's served in the Muslim world for 18 years. And so our church will be taking new initiatives, undoubtedly, in the Muslim world under Dan's leadership, which thrills me and also scares the bejabbers out of me. Because you want to know why we're not reaching the Muslim world? Because we're trying to do our mission and also stay alive. It's the American way. We'll go in with arms and protect ourselves all along the way. That's the American way. No one's going to lose their life. We're not going to be silly and foolish. You can't do that if you're going to reach the urban areas of this world. And if you're going to reach the very lost places of this world, it's going to take blood and guts. So Joseph Zahn is correct. There's no salvation in the world until there's blood in the church. And as the early church said, the seed of the martyrs is, or the blood of the martyrs is the seed of the church. And that's the way it must be until Jesus Christ comes back because we live in a wicked world. So you want to know why people are martyred? For the glory of Jesus Christ. That's why. Now, there were some in the early church who probably had a death wish or maybe they were depressive or melancholy or maybe they were overzealous 
and they wanted to offer their lives as martyrs. Gentlemen, I don't suggest that. That doesn't honor Christ for you just simply to want to take your life and try to go out in blazes. No, you live your life for Him. And there may come a point where your reputation or your income or your social standing or your friendships may be threatened and you just die right there. There's your martyrdom. And if things change, and who knows, they may or you could get sent somewhere where your testimony to the reality of Jesus Christ and the gospel may cost you your life. If so, glory be to God. And there are many who have died and we never knew it, but they still glorified God. And all the angels sang the, the hymns to the Savior who is worthy of such blood. But you'll notice in Romans 12, 1 and 2, that many today are being martyred, including you, because the Apostle Paul says, in view of these mercies, brother, brothers, that is the mercies of the gospel in saving you, in view of those mercies, I plead with you to offer your bodies as sacrifices, as living sacrifices. And of course, as some have often said, the problem with living sacrifices is they crawl off the altar. But Paul says, offer your bodies as living sacrifices, which he says is only reasonable. It is holy and reasonable worship. Why is it reasonable? Or the other translation could be spiritual. But why is it reasonable worship? Because of what we just said. He laid down his life for you. It is only reasonable now that in our worship we lay down our lives for him. That is true worship. That's how we do it. Some disciples will face martyrdom for their faith. Well, we spent most of our time on verses 1 and 2, haven't we? Let's spend a few minutes on verses 3 through 17 where we learn that some disciples will escape martyrdom. Praise the Lord for that too. God will be glorified either way. Because we're not going to escape martyrdom by being disobedient to Him. And when we're obedient to Him, we often get ourselves in trouble and face martyrdom. So if we escape martyrdom, it's not going to be because of our clever coping mechanisms. It's going to be because of His sovereign power and grace and mercy in delivering us from martyrdom. So let's look at the text here. First of all, in verse 3, we learn that the charges are often unjust. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, when he saw that killing James pleased the Jews, what did Herod Agrippa the first want to do? Arrest Peter so we can kill him too. Boy, that'll make the Jews really happy. Complete injustice from a Roman official. And the Romans were known for their legal purity. And here you have it, complete injustice in the world's best system at the time. And that will happen to you. Don't be shocked when you get into trouble because someone is being completely unjust toward you. That's just the majority report. Secondly, the powers against us are great. They're not only unjust in their judgments, but they're vicious in their power, and they've got power to exercise. They can throw us in prison. They can put four squads of soldiers on us to guard us every four hours during the night, or every three hours, that is. And he did, of course, wait till Passover was over, but something happened. But we're going to see that the powers against us are great. That is, Satan is more powerful than you are. And that's the reason that in Ephesians 6, when Paul tells us to fight this battle, you have to put on the whole armor of God. You need the breastplate of righteousness, his righteousness. You need the shield of faith. You need the helmet of salvation. You need the sword of the Spirit. And what are all these pieces of armor? They're Christ. 
It's faith in Christ, the righteousness of Christ, the salvation of Christ, the word of Christ. It's all Christ. Why? Well, third point, verses 5 through 17, because the power of God or the power of Christ is greater than the power that is in this world. That's the reason that John says, he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. And John knew it from personal experience. It's amazing. When you've been overwhelmed by the powers of this world and you know that your life is standing in the balance and you simply call on Jesus, (laughs) it's amazing what he is often willing to do just simply to spare your life. Now, notice that this power of God, let's notice four things about it. First of all, it's exercised through prayer, often. Often exercised through prayer, whether it's Elijah on Mount Carmel, Moses at the Red Sea, David before Goliath, Daniel before the lion's den praying, or Nehemiah in Jerusalem. All those men prayed. John Wesley said, I'm convinced that nothing of God happens apart from prayer. That's an overstatement, but it's a lively and helpful one. God is working through prayer. You want to fight the fight? You're going to have to ask for his help because the powers arrayed against you are stronger than you are. You can't do it that way. You can try, but it's not going to lead to anything really good. You're going to have to devote your life to Christ, offer up your life as a sacrifice, and ask him in his infinite power to work through your weakness to fight the battle in the world. Secondly, notice that this great power of God is often without our initiative. If, that, if anything's clear here, is that not it? When Herod was about to bring him out on that very night, Peter was doing what? Sleeping between two soldiers with chains on his arms and legs. And he's led out in a stupor. He doesn't even know if he's awake yet. He thinks he's in a dream. So Peter gets out of this and he says, man, you won't believe what I thought up last night. I escaped, man. Nobody's going to hold me down. Just the opposite. Peter says, huh, what happened? (laughs) That's the way the Lord is with you. Even as you slept last night, he's caring for you. He's protecting you. He's in charge of your life. Let him be in charge. You can't keep yourself alive during the night. He kept you alive during the night and during the day. So trust him. It's without our initiative. And I put Ephesians 2, 8, and 9 there to remind you your salvation is the same way. You were asleep, or as Paul says, you were dead in your trespasses and sins, and he raised you to believe in him. He gave you the gift of repentance and faith. Thirdly, notice that sometimes this initiative happens through miraculous intervention. Now, sometimes it happens just through God's special providences. You'll notice certain what we call coincidences in your life happening. You go, oh, that's interesting. Those, those three things happen all in the same hour on the same day so that this would happen in my life and I would be able to do this ministry for him and the other. You know, that's really interesting. You know, chance is a wonderful thing. No, be aware of God's special providence in your life. He's orchestrating everything in history. But sometimes he suspends natural cause and effect. That's called miracles. And here he does just that. The gate opens of its own accord, says Luke. Well, I'll tell you whose accord it was. It was the Lord's accord that opened that iron gate and caused the chains to fall off his arms and his legs. Fourthly, notice that sometimes this deliverance is so great and his power is so great that it's beyond the church's belief. They said to her, said to Rhoda, Rhoda, you're out of your mind. (laughs) Peter was knocking on the door and she didn't let him in because she knew it couldn't be Peter. 
How did she know it couldn't be Peter? Because Peter was arrested by the most powerful man in her whole area. And he was put in prison with guards on three hours rotations. There's no way that could be Peter. And they all said, it's got to be a ghost. God doesn't do things like this. He's working miracles. Our minds are set to expect normal, natural cause and effect. And when God eliminates that cause and effect or does something even extraordinary, even in the realm of nature, we hardly believe it. It's like the man who was nailing his shingles on his roof and he began to slip. It was a very steep roof and he was up four flights. It was a very steep roof. He was nailing shingles. He started to slide. He said, oh my God, save me, help me. And just at that moment, he's getting ready to go off the end of the gutter and in the back of his pants caught on a nail on the loop, the back loop caught on a nail and he was just in there hanging. And he looked up and he said, never mind God, my pants caught on a nail. We just don't think of God. We think of natural cause and effect. And here we see sometimes it's beyond our belief. We need to open our minds to see things that others can't see, gentlemen. Lastly, in verses 18 through 24, we see not only that we will face violent opposition to the gospel, some will face martyrdom, some by God's miraculous care will escape martyrdom, but God will vindicate all of His servants. Do you not see it here at the end of this chapter? Do you see what's happening? First of all, our abusers will perish. Gentlemen, every time you find in the Scriptures a text like Genesis 12, 3 that I've listed there where God calls Abraham and He says, Abraham, I'm going to call you and make a great nation out of you and you will bless all the nations and those who bless you will be blessed and those who curse you will be cursed. And gentlemen, when you come to the New Testament and Paul explains very clearly in Galatians chapter 3 and 4, how when you believe in Jesus Christ, you have become the sons of Abraham. You are now in that Old Testament family. And all the promises that applied to Abraham now apply to you. Let me tell you something. Anybody who abuses you will be abused. Anybody who persecutes you will be persecuted. Anybody who curses you will be cursed. Anybody who blesses you because you're God's people, they will find a blessing. You understand this, that you are the apple of God's eye. You are His sons. You are His family. And he has every intention of protecting you and vindicating you. And that when somebody touches you, when someone abuses you, when someone doesn't show you respect, they have dissed the God of heaven. That's how he feels about you. And you see it here in this very text. All those who had anything to do with abusing uh, Peter, look what happens to them, that through the wickedness of Herod, they're put to death. Notice secondly, B, our persecutors will be judged. And even the great king himself here, he claims to, he, as Josephus, the first century historian, Jewish historian says, that actually what Herod was wearing was a garment that had silver in it. And when you have a garment that has silver threading in it and you go out into the sunshine, it glistens and makes you look like a god. That's what Josephus said he was wearing. So when he comes out and he makes this great oration, the people say, oh, it's a god, it's not a mere man. And Herod preached right on as though he was a god and not a man. And immediately an angel struck him. Now Josephus says that he died of worms, actually. What Luke says is an angel struck him. Well, both are true. God's hand was in the worms. And then you see that Luke says he was eaten by worms. Well, he was being eaten by these tapeworms on the inside and then eventually he was eaten his whole body was eaten there you go that's what happens to your persecutors don't doubt it not a one is getting away not a one will escape the judgment of god and there will be a judgment it will begin with the household of god 
and then the entire world will be judged. Believe me, there's coming a day of vindication. You don't have to wreak vengeance yourself. You don't have to vindicate yourself. That's already taken care of. And then lastly, notice in verse 24, these wonderful words, but the word of God increased and multiplied. Gentlemen, do you see this? Our mission will flourish. Here's the way John Stott put it in his commentary if you read it. He said, this chapter, Stott says, this chapter opens with James dead, Peter in prison, and Herod triumphing. It closes with Herod dead, Peter free, and the word of God triumphing. Ariel Durant, who was an atheist, who wrote the multiple volumes on the history of the world, spoke about this season in world history as Christ and Caesar. That was the title of the volume. At the end of that volume, he says, here's the conclusion. Christ met Caesar in the arena, and Christ won. Christ triumphed over the blood of his cross. And do you want to know why we get vindicated at the end? Do you want to know why the mission will flourish even through the martyrdom of the church? I'll tell you why. Here's the chief reason. The chief martyr himself was completely vindicated. He was raised from the dead. And he now triumphs over all the principalities and powers in the world, including the ones who nailed him to the cross. And those who use their wicked oppression of the righteous to convict him and put him on the cross are now at his feet being ruled by him and he will smash the nations like a a king with an iron rod. That's what the psalmist says. So the very one who was put to death by violent hands has been vindicated, has been resurrected. Now, brothers, here's the rest of the story. He has vindicated you. He is the firstborn among the dead. Firstborn. He's the first ingathering of the harvest. There's a mighty harvest of vindicated martyrs. That's us, guys. If he's been raised from the dead, so shall you be raised from the dead. That's the reason there's vindication. That's the reason the mission flourishes through men who lay down their lives and shed their blood because they took up a cross and were following the Savior. And they expect that the Word of God will flourish because of it, just as it did because of the death of our first martyr, the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to His name. Let us pray. Father, we thank You for the great and high calling to follow Jesus. We thank you that he took up a cross for our sakes. And that cross was powerful. That cross accomplished much in the salvation of men and women and boys and girls around the world and through the ages. Lord, we would take up that cross. And no matter what it costs us, we would lay down our lives and we'll leave it with you to decide whether we are the James or the Peter, whether we are martyred or we escape martyrdom. And we know that in either case, you will vindicate us one day and all of your church around the world and there will be unending joy and triumph. So Lord, grant us courage just for this day, through the rest of this week, until we meet you with all of your people gathered in holy assembly on the Lord's day. Help us, O Lord, to walk as the men who are blessed because... We are persecuted by a violent world. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen.
Merci.